You're listening to KTDTLP Tucson, Downtown Radio 99.1 FM. You are listening to The Depression Session at 99.1 FM, Downtown Radio. Each week, we'll have a new guest tell the story of their depression. I'm your host, Laura Milkins, and thank you for joining us on The Depression Session. Just a note for my listeners, I want to make sure you understand that this is a show about depression, and some of the content can be triggering, so please take care of yourself if something on the show brings up difficult feelings, and seek professional help if you need it. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to The Depression Session on Downtown Radio. Today, we have with us in the studio, Angela Orlando. Angela is a cultural anthropologist, writer, and storyteller. We'll be right back with Angela, but first, let's talk about change. So I have been feeling ever since I went to Oaxaca with my students that I want to have a different life <laughs> and I just want to live, live somewhere different and have a totally different life than I have right now. And it's an impulse I get once in a while. I don't know how related it is to depression, but it's, uh, I was talking to a friend about it and they were saying they're feeling the same way. And I tried to look up you know, change and depression, new lifestyle and depression, but all they had were all the recommendations they always say for how to manage your depression, exercise, diet, alcohol, sleep, thoughts and emotions, stress reduction, social support, purpose. So it didn't really get into that feeling. And I think it's fairly common of, I want to go to, I want to move to San Diego, go to the beach regularly, teach a few classes there and have a different life. Like I've been in Tucson for 12 years. I've been in this house for five years and I just feel like I want to just do a different life for like a year or two years or something like that. I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea to try something new or to move or to make a change. But everything I read said, when you're depressed, don't make big changes. And on the other hand, while I was in Oaxaca, my depression was gone. I felt really up and and good. And part of it was that I was removed from all of the things in my life that almost like keep me stuck in a way. And I I talked to my boyfriend and I said, what, why don't we like Airbnb my house and go live in San Diego for a month when I'm done with the school year and literally just go try a different life just to try it. And it felt good. It felt right. It didn't feel, it felt a little bit escapist, (laughs) but it also feels like a refresh. Last year, I went to an artist and writers retreat over the summer. This summer, I took my students to Oaxaca for two weeks. And I think it's maybe a good idea to sometimes just get out of your circle. Because every time I've done that, I've come back refreshed with a new perspective and feeling like I got out of some of the muck of what my life is here. Because before I went to Oaxaca, I I really didn't even want to get out of bed or do anything. I felt run down and not interested, that blah feeling. So I just want to say to you all, maybe, you know, give yourself a staycation or go somewhere different if you get the opportunity. Allow yourself to refresh your batteries so you can come into your life. And, and it, I do feel that for me, at least that's a practice that maybe I just need to do is take time to go, go do different life for a little while. So that when I come back to my life, it's not like it's not my life when I'm away, but when I come back to my life here, I can see it with new eyes. And now for announcements. 
Looking for a medical marijuana dispensary with a knowledgeable staff, clean environment, and wide selection of edibles, concentrates, and flour? Then you need to know about the Prime Leaf and their newly relocated dispensary. Now in its new home at Speedway in Columbus, the Prime Leaf is a compassionate, client-centered choice for your medical marijuana needs. You can visit their website, theprimeleaf.com, or follow them on social media to find out more about specials, discounts, and their higher rewards program. You're invited to stop in seven days a week to see for yourself at 4220 East Speedway. Support for Downtown Radio comes from Elliott's on Congress. Open 11 a.m. to 2 a.m. every day. Elliott strives to put a unique spin on comfort food, featuring unique dishes such as the Duck Club Sandwich, Bacon Rangoons, and Penne Alla Vodka. Additionally, Elliott's features 25 flavors of house-infused vodka, including pineapple, horseradish, ginger, peppercorn, and coffee bean. Brunch mimosa specials are also available at Elliott's on weekend mornings. There's karaoke every Wednesday night, plus Elliott's has access to every Major League Baseball game. Elliott's is located at 135 East Congress Street. For more information, you can check out their website, elliottsoncongress.com, Facebook page, or call 622-5500. Today we have with us in the studio Angela Orlando. Angela is a cultural anthropologist, writer, and storyteller. Hello, Angela. Welcome to the Depression Session. Hi, how are you? I'm good. So what's new with you? Well, actually, it's so interesting that you're talking about change today because it's a major pivotal life change in my world as well. I'm starting a business, and it happens to be women's wilderness writing workshops. Wow. I mean, no, I'm super excited (laughs) because I had been in a job that was really not me, well-paying, but really not me. So I took the leap and said, I don't care about the money. I care about honoring myself. So I'm actually quite thrilled because the website's going live today. Whoa, congratulations. I know. Thank you. It's huge. (laughs) Really. What's the website? Can you share that with us? Yeah, it's going to be www.wilderwriters.com. Wow, I love it. Instagram and Facebook, Wilder Writers. I got a great domain. Yeah. (laughs) And so people would be able to like go on a retreat and get that away feeling. Yeah, the first one's going to be in Patagonia, Arizona at a sanctuary called Raven's Way. Beautiful. Yeah, we're now booking. Wow. That's so, that's such synchronicity because I literally didn't know you were going to talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I didn't know it was going to be official like, as of last night. So. That's wonderful because I, I do. I feel like I, you know, having gone to an artist writer's retreat last summer for a month, actually, I just, it was really helpful. I think sometimes you really, you just need to do a different life for a little while. Yeah. And it's the goal is to be extremely inclusive for people of varying physical abilities as well as gender identification. I'm, totally open and inclusive of trans people and, you know, cis women and basically anybody who self-identifies female. So I also think that the retreat is going to be awesome for people who are struggling with any kind of depression or other mental struggles. Great. So Angela, tell us the story of your depression. Well, I, I definitely think it started with a reticence to accept the diagnosis. Yet, you know, I grew up in a household that was very tense, very emotive. And so for me, the irritability that my 
disease manifests as. I thought that was the norm. I thought that irritability and extreme heightened stress and then retreating from that by hiding, I thought this was a normal way to be until I began to realize that it wasn't actually. Time passes, fast forward a lot. I'm 21 at the time, and I met the man who would be my husband. And we, we didn't marry for seven and a half years, and we stayed married for one and a half years. It was volatile. And again, I kind of thought that that was the norm, but I was beginning to manifest as from what I understand in the early twenties, as the brain becomes fully formed, that's when the symptoms become diagnosable instead of just like personality traits, the disease is actually sudden. I don't have depression per se. I have bipolarity, the hypomanic mostly, but definitely you no know, stranger to the depressive symptoms of that disorder. So. Fast forward some more, I'm getting my master's in Las Cruces, and my husband and I, our marriage is just not working, and so he went forward to get his PhD in another city, and I went to get my doctorate at UCLA, and we were going back and forth to his city, which shall remain nameless, and my city, he had a lot of money, and um, so he was flying me back and forth, until one day in his city, I found him crumpled up in the bathtub in very ill state, and he had a confession to make to me. And that was that he had been, since he was 17 at the time, I think he was 32, you know, something like that. And he had been suffering from extreme sex addiction mm -hmm. to the point of spending multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars on prostitutes. And so I had a decision to make and I went into like this very sick myself, symptomatic space. And um, he paid for us to both get treatment, which happened to be in Los Angeles. And in the interim, it's my very first quarter at a very rigorous department, super selective, really, really difficult, trying to do analysis of Marxism as applied to developing nations. I mean, it was tough and it was a proving ground and I was not proving because I went into a, a depression, which, you know, anybody might say that after hearing that kind of news and having that kind of, he was really sick. So like that kind of jolt and changing to a new city that was LA and to be in a rigorous department, yeah, of course that would flatten anyone. But it flattened me to the point where I couldn't get up. And it was, I guess, a trigger, like a major divorce, ultimately, just a huge trigger to put me in the lowest space. I was never suicidal, but I didn't really have a will to move around, and it was LA, I love LA. After much treatment, I enrolled in, UCLA provides medical insurance for their grad students. So I got to see a therapist, and I'm going to put that in invisible quotation marks. He was in training, he was younger than me by probably about five years, and I was definitely manifesting symptoms of what would end up being diagnosed as bipolarity. He said that my ex-husband's addiction was my fault for not satisfying said ex-husband, which by the way, I did. I did satisfy said ex-husband. 
I mean, it made me sicker. It really made me sicker to be not only invalidated, but to be, and I had my first panic attack that very day on the mall in public and I was teaching. So I talked to a friend and she said, you know, if you say these magic words, I feel suicidal. They'll send you not to intro to therapy therapist, but they'll send you to like the Cedar sinai UCLA affiliate, whereupon I got to see Dr. Philip Kogan, who's leading expert on psychopharmacology with a focus on bipolarity. And oh my gosh, I was so lucky. Yet, he, he's a very Freudian man, and he was very uh, straightforward to the point. He's like, you're obviously, you know, manic and swinging. And I mean, he was just cut and dried with the diagnosis, which I had trouble accepting because it made me feel weak. He prescribed to me immediately. And of course, for me, one of my major take-home messages for anybody suffering from mental illness is to not be ashamed of the fact that you might have to take meds for the rest of your life. It is not acute. It's chronic. It's just like diabetes or any other chemical imbalance that's nurtured by your cultural context and your social context. But of course, it's biological, and that's okay. However, accepting that I was relegated to, relegated to to taking meds for the rest of my life and strong ones was very difficult for me to accept. Add on to that what you were speaking of earlier when people are like, oh, just do yoga. And it's like, I wish I could wave a magic yoga wand. I do yoga occasionally, but uh, often actually. But that isn't going to cut it for people who are able to access psych meds, which is another issue too. Since I don't have insurance now, I can't necessarily get my meds. And I've been writing about that for various publications, the subjective experience of being a doctor who can't get meds and what that looks like for the U.S. society. So ultimately, he and I divorced. I went forward to UCLA. I'm so lucky that they kept me because I was turning in garble. I mean, really, I was not, I was not proving my awesomeness at all. I was proving my sickness. And I didn't want to tell anybody because I didn't want to, sometimes it feels like playing a card, you know, like playing the bipolar card. Luckily, Dr. Kogan hooked me up with a cocktail that still retains its efficacy. I've had to switch it up and down and the like. I've had weight gain, which certainly triggers more depression when you get up and you don't feel good about yourself. In fact, you don't fit into your clothes and you feel bad about yourself and add LA on top of that. So, (laughs) ultimately, I mean, I got my cocktail and I was able to function. And not just function, but thrive. However, there is no magic bullet. I found in the course of my diagnosis and my treatment that you can still be extraordinarily symptomatic, though on an evener keel with mood stabilizers and antidepressants. It's not ever going to be asymptomatic and it's not numbing you can still feel that's another myth I think about psych meds is that you're numbed out oh no (laughs) you're not numbed out you're just not the edges are less intense 
And so I, I wanted to close the story out with what it felt like recently to be deprived of meds. And I mean that quite literally. And I had to go to jail. And it was for three days. And the, though my lawyer told me exactly what to do to ensure that I had my meds, I had my, I don't have a doctor right now because I don't have insurance and she's really expensive. So I had my pharmacy call in the prescription to the jail, minimum security jail doctor, and called and make sure they got it. I got no answer, called, 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 brought in an emergency supply the day before you check in, just in case. And so they had the meds, but they would not administer them to me. So for the first time since, 2007, I want to say, 2007, I went not just one day, but three days without meds, and they can do that. I don't know if it's legal, I'm looking into that, but they did hold them back and said that I had to see the prison doctor if I wanted to get them, which is not right, not legally and not ethically, because the doctor wouldn't be there until Monday after I was released. So, and I noticed that they did this with other people's um, antidepressants as well. And so the nurse who comes in and administers them, I felt like I was in one floor of the cuckoo's nest. I really did. Because they give them to you in these little cups with this little water, and I would stand in line eagerly at every shift change for the nurse and go, I'm signed up for this. I'm supposed to have my meds. And they said, go do yoga. Again, with the damn yoga. They said exercise, and then they were condescending, and they said, you need to understand that there's going to be times in your life that you're without your meds. And it made me feel, A, disempowered, and B, kind of like sicker, because I'm like, wow, I guess I probably should be able. And then I went into panic space, because I'm thinking, I don't want to enter psychosis in a jail, <laughs> or anywhere, <laughs> but particularly in minimum security Tucson, Arizona jail. So I guess my story is a relationship between diagnosis, acceptance, and understanding that I need to be on meds, and that that's okay. This is a chronic disease. I'm, I'm glad to see that you, in particular, and other people like you are, are destigmatizing this, because it afflicts so many people. And it's genetic, of course, but... And finally, I guess to, to summarize, you know, as a cultural anthropologist, I have looked at cross-cultural manifestations of or absence thereof of depression. Some places it simply is not acknowledged because it's invisible, right, sometimes. So I guess just the take-home message is to really, it's okay to, to have this illness. Thanks so much for your story. Many heart-rending things in there where, you know, you, you get a diagnosis ultimately, but it doesn't fix everything in your life, right? <laughs> being able to have the meds, being able, it's still things are, life goes on. It's not, I like that idea that you said about, it doesn't mean that you don't feel anything. It doesn't mean that you don't have ups and downs. Because I do think that people have an idea that there's a magic bullet and then you're just going to be great. No. <laughs> And mental health doesn't work that way. Our brains are so complex. The way all the neurochemicals work are so complex. And there's never going to be one fix. And there's not going to be one fix that works for everyone. And then the thing that I thought was really beautiful is that you found something that did work for you. So far. It's almost, it's almost like lucky in a way. It's lucky if you get a good person. Absolutely. 
I was so lucky to have that doctor and his expertise and his willingness to, towards the very first time he gave me Prozac and I had no sex drive and I was straight up, I have no sex drive. And he was like, well, we need to fix that and then weight gain. And now this cocktail is huge and very expensive. Be lucky to get it diagnosed when I did and the prescription pretty spot on from the start. So Angela, one of the things that I found really fascinating and terrible was the idea that you'd be in jail and not have your meds. And I didn't know that that was something that happened. Yeah, I don't think the general public knows that that happens, especially since being very regimented person, well, somewhat regimented person, I followed all the instructions to ensure that I did indeed get my meds. The intake process is approximately eight hours, and you do see a nurse, and she did indicate that she couldn't guarantee that I would get my meds, and I actually did not for three days. Luckily, it was very mellow in there and clean and stuff, but, you know, I, I definitely had withdrawal symptoms, and they were condescending, saying that I should exercise or do yoga in order to ease my symptoms that were their fault. So I fear, like, in the worst-case scenario, if they're withholding meds, especially psych meds, from women who are imprisoned, that this could be a very bad idea, you yeah. know, resulting in everything from self-harm yeah. to harming others. It scares me because I have a friend who is currently in the process of titrating off a medication that they've been on for quite a while, and there's a lot of withdrawal symptoms, even doing it very slowly and very, you know, it could be dangerous. It could be physically yeah. dangerous. It was, um, it's, it's a, I've missed a med now and again, but never three and days. And the metallic feeling in your head, and it, it makes your jaw, for me, it makes my jaw tense up. And I just felt panicky. Like, am I going to do something that I literally cannot control? And I really, really wanted to challenge them and say, would you do this to a diabetic? Would you do this to somebody who is heart. also life-saving? Heart medication. But, like heart medication. Sure. Exactly. They minimize, of course. But if I had said that or challenged them too terribly much, they could extend my time in there. They give you discipline, which involves extended time. And no meds <laughs> for more time. So I was really scared. I felt disempowered and I felt physically ill and I felt irate. I think that the world needs to understand that they're really arbitrary with administering meds. Well, thanks for sharing that. Sure. And then I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about like, it sounds like you had, because we're talking about change, it sounds like you had like all these changes happen at one time and all these expectations and then, you know, mental health challenges. <laughs> sounds pretty much. <laughs> and you know I don't think that these changes uh, yeah of course they're going to trigger a healthy person to go into a weird space but I also think that with particularly people who are struggling just the barrage of changes whether self-inflicted like starting a business moving back to Tucson all of these things whether self-inflicted or inflicted by the universe people who have mental health issues aren't doing it to flee per se I think doing it because they need the, the stimulus in order to thrive. And I think that it's also interesting that you're a cultural anthropologist. What drew you to that? I really lucked out. Um, I took a class. I was doing my undergrad here. I was a journalism major. And um, I was already working at the Star and the Wildcat and 
that was years ago gone. And uh, I took a class from the man who would become my mentor, Mike Schiffer, super kind, super famous theoretician. And I was like, oh, so this gets me doing journalism all around the world, but in a deeper relationship to my participants. And I get to travel, and I get to immerse myself. Not just the journalism, which I still do, that is, you kind of have a shallow relationship with your participants and seldom revisit. Yeah, reporting is different than um, social science. Yeah, yeah, very different. (laughs) Especially reporting these days. (laughs) (laughs) I'm having an interesting time of it. Yeah. And then what, what inspired, are you a writer in general or is, is it like a passion separate from what you've done as a cultural anthropologist in your studies or does it kind of tie in together? Well, I'm definitely uh, more of a memoirist, I guess you could say a storyteller, an anecdotal storyteller, but I do love representing other people's stories accurately. Cultural anthropology, the product is ethnography whether it be film or textual, what we do is we travel the world trying to represent other people's lived experiences. And so it's reportage, but then for my own personal writing, I just really like to tap into my rich and manic past. (laughs) (laughs) Starting this business really honors all of that because it's teaching, which I teach college as well and have for many years. It's teaching willing adults who want to be there And in the wilderness, which I have a deep passion for, glamping, bonding with women over wine, coffee, tea, yes, and then um, generating content because I found so many academics such as myself, you know, we have that novel in us and we just don't take out the time to honor ourselves and just write. And so this is a sanctuary that's but it's also, I need a lot of alone time, as do I think a lot of writers. So it offers both a workshop and extensive alone time. Marrying my love of travel, they're internationally situated. One in Spain, Peru, coming up, Yellowstone. Wonderful. Going home. <laughs> <laughs> I actually was talking to, I have an art club at Pima with my students, and I was talking to them about committing to the time and space to do your work. Because many people have interest in being a writer, an artist, a dancer, a musician, but until you commit to yourself with it, commit it's it really comes down to the time and space. If you can commit to the time and space, you'll be productive. You'll surprise yourself. You'll make wonderful things. And if you don't, you won't. And you can do other things with your life. That's fine. But if you want to do art and you want to be an artist of any sort, any of the arts, you really need a time and a space. And it sometimes it takes a monetary commitment. Sometimes it takes a space commitment and always takes a time commitment. It's really hard to honor that in a culture that, you know, we're more obsessed with stuff and doing and work and, you know, making a living than we are with setting aside an hour. It's, it seems impossible sometimes to set aside an hour a day. Especially for women, because we have the three shifts. You know, we often have a work outside the the home, most of us, I think, now. And then housework, which, of course, males and partners are indeed stepping up statistically, but it's not equal. And then the third shift, which is the emotional investment of taking care of, just taking care of everything. And so you have this, your mind is constantly worrying. And when you're depressed you feel like worthless as a female as well. 
trying to fight for equality, but you can't get out of bed. So yeah, this writing workshop, these writing workshops um, provide a sanctuary literally in the wilderness, but accessible to all. But solo time, as well as voluntary immersion time, your choice, how you want to spend it, but it's yours in a sacred space in the wilderness. And that was the other thing that we were talking about is connection to, with a colleague actually, connection to nature. And I have this mission this year to take my students places, like not just be in the classroom. It's not a creative space. And there's no reason I couldn't schedule five little field trips. And they literally could be just out to the garden at Desert Vista. We could walk out to the garden space. I have like 20 field trips built in and all of my solo life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because I think everyone, and maybe I'm wrong, but I feel that everyone needs a connection to the natural world. Yeah, I mean, nature is my church and just sometimes hauling myself out to go outside is, is more than I can do. But nature is instantly and always healing. So any last thoughts? I can't really think of any concluding remarks except to revisit the idea that don't be ashamed if you have to or are improved by feel better with psych meds. And here's hoping that the U.S. does something to make them accessible to all because so many of our homeless people are, are mentally ill and can't get help. That is a beautiful note to end the show on. Angela, thanks, thanks so much for being on the depression session. Thank you for hosting the show. Yeah, thanks. I want to mention again that if you found some of the content of today's episode triggering, please seek professional help and call 911 if you feel like hurting yourself or others. I'm not a licensed therapist, and this show and the station are not endorsing any remedies or products. The purpose of this show is to destigmatize depression through storytelling. You can find a link to mental health services on downtownradio.org on the About KTDT page. To listen to the podcast, or if you're interested in being on the show, contact us at www.thedepressionsession.com. You've been listening to The Depression Session on Downtown Radio Tucson with music by Septa Helix. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at the Depression Session Podcast. Thank you.